Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. Welcome. Tonight we're joined by Dr. Bill Berman. He is the CEO of Berman Leadership Development, which not only trains individuals, but trains teams across many different industries to become better and more accountable leaders. He's an author of Influence and Impact. And Bill, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we're going to learn an awful lot. My pleasure. Well, I think I'm going to learn some from you too. So I'm looking forward to it. No promises there, but uh, we're going to jump in. You, you have such a diverse background. When did you know you wanted to go to leadership that you can make a difference in affecting leadership and impacting lives from that avenue? You know, it wasn't really until I started my own company. So as you know, uh, in the mid-90s, I started a software firm that I didn't think was going to be a big thing, but we had good luck and some intuition and ended up being in the right place at the right time. And it grew not to be, I'm not like we were Salesforce or anything, but um, we, I was, I had a good team of about 10 people and we sold it to a healthcare information system in 2000. And I ran a professional services team of about 25 people from there. Um, and I, number one, I had fun doing it. I was really enjoying it. Number two, I thought I was pretty good at it. Um, and then when I left that software company in 04, I had a coach who said, you know, you've got the clinical skills on the one hand, you've got the business skills on the other. He said, that's an unusual combination for coaching. Why don't you be an executive coach? I mean, he wasn't quite that direct, but that was essentially how it worked. And uh, I looked into it and it seemed like an interesting field. Um, And so I started doing that in 05 and have never looked back. Uh, It's been a great time. The phrase executive coach, were you receptive to that back then? Or was it sometimes getting the doors that we don't need help in leadership? We need sales, uh, make better widgets, sell better widgets. But we're good on the leadership side. So I think there are three types of executive coaching. There's skills-focused coaching, which is when you have a former sales leader who is advising or coaching um, a new sales leader on how to set up their team, how to compensate their people, that kind of stuff. Then there's the what we call developmental coaching, which is people who have been in a role for a while. They may be very successful in some ways, but they may be having some trouble in the other, in another way. And I, we get a lot of those where people are um, excelling in one part and then and struggling in another part, often on the interpersonal side. But sometimes it's on the personal side. Occasionally it's on the strategy side or business side. Um, and then there's uh, what we call future-focused coaching, which is helping people prepare for the next role and the next role. And that's um, that's something that is more often done in programmatic coaching. So a whole group, a cadre of uh, high performers uh, get pulled together. And we do that as well. Um, But I get, we do a lot of, and to answer your question, people would call me when they had a problem 
and and I would help them solve that problem. And a lot of coaches don't like that kind of coaching, but it's for me, it's fun. And it probably in the beginning, it had to be unique because you were leading your own team as a leader, but yet you're training them and yourself to go out and lead and advise other teams. How did early on struggles figuring out that balance of leading your own team and then advising corporations? You know, at the beginning, I didn't have a team. I started, when I switched, I'd had enough of running a business. I had was tired of worrying about other people's home payments and car payments and college payments. So I was perfectly happy to be an independent practitioner. And it wasn't for a few years that I, till I had started building my own team. Um, so for me, that was easy. But I think every leader has to balance being the leader of a team with being on a team. And, you know, and, and even when you're the CEO, you may be the leader of the whole company, but you've got a board of directors and you're on their team, not on you're on the chairman's team. And and it's it's always you're balancing what you're doing with the people who report to you versus the people who are outside of you, whether they're customers or whether they're, they're your colleagues um, or they're your business partners. So it's it's. It's an, it's, a, it's an ongoing balance for all of us. Bill, if I asked you to build a perfect leader or a successful leader, I don't think perfect is attainable, what attributes are vital in your opinion to building that leader? So there's been a fair amount of research on, on the characteristics of a, of a good leader. And there are... They don't have to have been in this particular business. They don't have to have been in a, with a particular education. Ivy leaguers don't make any better leaders than, than state schools or, or you know, blue-collar leaders. So none of those kinds of things really matter. What matters is, and I'll, I'm going to use a phrase that one of my clients used way back in the beginning. He said, great leaders give their people something to believe in, someone to believe in and someone who believes in them. And so it's not so much about their characteristics as it is about their capabilities. And can they, can they inspire people? Can they tell people, here's that hill we're going to take? Here's, that, here's where we're sailing to? And can they then get those people to come along and, and work with them? And then, you know, do they, do they treat people fairly? Are they, are they, do they have integrity? Are they honest? Are they open? Those are the kinds of things that you look for in a great leader. The rest of it is, you know, there are great leaders who are strategic. There are great leaders who don't have a strategic bone in their body. There are great leaders who are financially focused. There are great leaders who are customer focused. That, that stuff is not quite as important. Leading a team, maybe you're not the top executive, but you're leading a sales team. How important is likability? In basketball, we see a lot of teams that are super talented, but they don't want to play for the head coach. So say in the boardroom, likability, how important? I wish I could say to you that I thought that was super important. I think success is better. Um, 
successful, being successful and show demonstrating success time after time, I think, uh, and, or being really inspiring in some way is more important than being likable. Um, if you think about Steve jobs, not at all a likable guy, but people stayed with him because they saw his vision and his ability to turn vision into reality. Their coaches, uh, their basketball coaches who were just awful human beings and they treat their people badly, but everybody believes they can win because they win over and over and over again. I don't advocate, I don't coach people who are bad human beings because um, it's I, that's hard to change. But um, I, I, I don't think likability is, I think you have to be likable. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think you have to be likable. I think you can't be mean and you can't be hurtful. But beyond that, I think it, it's, that's not a, I, I wish it were more important than it is. Bill, you mentioned that companies bring you in to help solve problems. How do you assess the situation and then kind of start to put together a, uh, a solution for your clients? Is there, are there interviews? Are there assessments? How, how does that work? So, you know, whether, whether you're coaching a sports team, whether you're coaching, uh, whether you're the head of a restaurant, the, you know, the main chef, or when you're doing what I'm doing, you do basically the same thing, which was you figure out what the lay of the land is. You figure out who the people are and what their capabilities are. And you figure out what's needed to be successful in that organization. For an executive coach, what that typically means is that you do some kind of personality assessment to understand who the person is at baseline. You do what's called a 360, which is a series of interviews or surveys of all the people around from the person's boss or boss's boss down to their peers, to their direct reports, sometimes even to their skip levels. And you use those interviews to get a picture of that individual. It's when you're doing a 360, you don't necessarily focus on what one person says. Because, um, so, you know, you can get an interview with somebody who's not doing very well, has just been told that they're being exited or they're on a, um, a performance improvement plan and they're angry. So they're critical. But if you see the same things over and over again, that's the feedback you give to that coach because, to, sorry, to that executive, because that's the thing that they're going to struggle with the most. And that's the thing that they need to change. And coming, becoming that 360 and that personality assessment help the person understand what's, what's needed to change, where do they need to focus, and what's the benefit of that change. There's a third part of that assessment, which is me. Right, because I've been doing this for 30 years. I have a great view of different styles and different approaches and how people show up differently. And so I bring that judgment to the table as well. So those three things combined, um, plus what the person tells me about themselves, um, helps me to create uh, an understanding of the individual and how I can be most helpful. Based on your experience, have you found that certain personality types are more successful in leadership positions or, you know, is there, is there one common trait that you would kind of point to? For the most part, it's emotional intelligence for lack of a better term. The most of the people you don't, you don't have to be brilliant. 
in some of these jobs you do, but you don't always have to be brilliant. Um, you have to understand your business. You have to understand the marketplace that you're playing in. And, but you really have to understand people, how to motivate people, how to inspire people, how to hold people accountable. You know, people use the term accountability all the time, and most people don't have any idea what that means. But you got you to gotta be able to do that in a way that people don't come away feeling like you just beat them up, right? But that, so they come away feeling, oh, he's right. I really didn't do a good enough job. That's, that's how you want people to feel. And uh, so it's it's that EQ that's really what's what's I think the most important for the for the most successful leaders. I mean, we can always find you know Travis Kalanick and people like that who are you know, the, but those are those are unusual circumstances for the most part. You've obviously worked with companies at different stages, you know, startups, ones that are probably trying to, to you know to raise funds, others that are more established, but now you know are having to answer to. Uh, not only the 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 you know Wall Street, but also a board of directors. Does the leadership change based on where the company's at, or is it consistent? No, it totally changes depending on where the company's. What you have to be, what you have to be able to do when you've got twenty people in a loft, and you just had your your Series B, and you've got one hundred and fifty million dollars to play with. But you don't quite know what the what the product market fit is, and you don't know how you're going to go to market. It's a very different place to be than somebody who's the CEO of a Fortune 500 company that's publicly traded and has been um, around for 20 years. the The former needs innovation, agility, flexibility, um, real optimism. You know, because because they're going to hit some real rough spots. Every single every single startup does, right? On for that publicly traded, that big publicly traded company, you have to have long vision. You have to have persistence. You have to really understand finance much more clearly, um, and and you have to be able to hold to a strategic plan and stay focused on that plan for chunks of time. Um, so that persistence looks different in each of those places, but persistence is one of the common factors. And um, optimism is one of the other factors that you need in both of those, in all of those kinds of jobs. But otherwise, it's they can be very different. So it seems there's, there's almost a parallel in coaching that, you know, if I'm taking over a losing program, one of the first things I have to do is instill confidence and optimism in the program that we can win, yep. and here's the path for us to get there. And then it, once we are winning, then it's that how do we maintain this and not regress? Is that, is that a fair statement? Absolutely, 100%. Um, there's, a, there's a TV a movie called Coach Carter, which you've probably seen, where, and he does this one scene there where he tells everybody what the brutal truth is. He says, you know, look at the guy on your left, look at the guy on your right. One of the three of you is going to be in jail in three years. And he says, but if you commit to working with me, I can promise you I will get you to a place where you get a scholarship and you get to a better life. And what he does there is exactly what a business writer uh, called um, the the... Uh, it was Stockdale Paradox. The Stockdale Paradox. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, 
confronting the brutal, brutal truth and then seeing what the, the path to the future. So hundred percent. Bill, the phrase born leader, are people quote a born leader or is it they see an opportunity, they want to become a leader and they study and read and put in the work, but are there born leaders? I could ask you the same thing. Are there born basketball players, right? Uh, are there born football players? The answer is both, right? You can be, you can, you can be given a raw talent and there are definitely people who are more talented at being a leader than other people. But if they don't practice it, if they don't hone it, if they don't work at it, if they don't study it, it's not going to happen. So, and I think the same is true with that, with business leadership, um, and with team leadership in whatever context, um, it, it takes, you got to have talent and you got to be able to work at it. What advice do you give to a leader about reflection at the end of the day or the end of the week to evaluate themselves? Sometimes it's easy to evaluate sales or a bottom line or your employees, but that looking in the mirror, what advice when you deal with corporations on how to reflect? I I try to get people to do two things. Um, the first is I like them to spend a little bit of time reflecting on how I did this week or today, depending on, on how, much, how close they need to focus on that stuff. And to think about what went well and what could have been better, what could have been more effective, where could I have done a better job, given better feedback, given clear direction, uh, been more optimistic. But the other side of that is I like them to start the day or start the week thinking about how am I going to be today? So what's, who am I, how am I going to be my best self in the things that are coming up? Because we found there's scientific, there's some neuroscience research in coaching that has shown that a focus on the positive is much more effective than a focus on where you're going wrong. That when you're, when you're focused on what you're doing wrong, it kicks in a certain part of the brain that narrows your focus and heightens your stress level. And when you think about how can I be the best version of myself this week or today or in this meeting, it opens you up. It's, it connects to what's called the parasympathetic system. And, and it opens you up. It makes you more reflective. It makes you more um, innovative. It makes you more creative. Um, so it's, I, I, you have to balance because you can't not focus on the things that aren't going well. But you got to balance that with, the, with, with having a vision of your ideal self and how you're going to get there. Bill, there are many le different leadership styles. There are some leaders that say, Layson, I have an open door policy. Welcome to the company. Come in if there's any problems. Or there's some that get off the mountaintop and go down to the floor and are with the people and do more listening than speaking. When you go in and advise after your initial evaluation, do you run into some of those leaders that will sit up in the perch and say, hey, come on in if there's a problem? I have both. We have, and, and the typical, typic, you know, so that you have the, what I call laissez-faire leaders who are like, you know, just deliver the numbers you told me you're going to deliver. I'm going to leave you alone to do that. 
Um, and you have leaders who are telling you how to write a paragraph or how to respond to an email. And some of that is personality style. Some of that, to be quite honest, is what are the resources that you have working for you um, or with you? Because if I have great players that are experienced and know what they're doing, I can sit back and say, let me know when you got a problem. Um, and when I have employees or staff who are, are really good at what they do, there's one, one of my coaches, I don't need to get involved in what he's doing. I just, I literally will say to him, let, let me know when you have a problem with this client. I'm happy to go talk to you about anything, but I know he's going to do the right steps, the right things and, and tailor it to that client. I have other people who are new or who, you know, quite honestly, didn't have the skills that I thought they were going to have. And so I have to manage them more closely. And that's true of my, my clients as well. Sometimes they just don't have the talent with them that they would like to have. And for whatever reason, they can't clean house and bring in a whole new set. Um, you know, sometimes that's because they're in the wrong community for that. You know, so the, the resources right aren't really aren't there. Sometimes it's just because they can't pay them enough. You know, if I'm a small business, um, even if I've got a bunch of money in the bank, it's going to be, if I have 15 people in my business, it's going to be hard for me to hire an SVP of sales who, who can knock the door down, right? That's because they're just not going to want to work for a company that size. So, you know, it's very, it's very variable. Um, the, the key to me is that you have to be able to do both. You have to be able to sit back and let people do their thing and hold them accountable for delivering on those results. And yeah, sometimes you have to drill into the, the weeds to make sure that things are going right and they're being dealt with. Because if you don't, you can have the most brilliant strategy in the world, but if you're not executing on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis the way you need to, that strategy is going to fail. In your discussions, I'm sure with employees, there are some that will say they're middle management right now. They're very loyal to the company. They're excelling at their job, but they want to take the next step, be it with that company if there's room for growth or somewhere else. But they want to get to upper senior management, executive level. What advice do you give them while maintaining loyalty to that company about how to move up? Do you have open conversations with senior leadership? You know, as a psychologist, we have a code of ethics. And one of the, one of the issue, one of the parts of the code of ethics is uh, focused on dual relationships. Executive coaches inherently have dual relationships. We have a relationship to the company and we have a relationship to the individual manager and we have a relationship to the individual. And the reason why it takes a sophisticated, a capable person to be an experienced person to be an executive coach is because you have to be able to balance those and manage those dynamics. When I contract with most companies, we talk about this up front. So I will, I will tell companies the, the content of my conversations with my client, with the individual, are confidential. Unless they're, unless they're going to shoot up the place or embezzle, I'm not going to tell you what we talk about. 
And if they're thinking about looking at another job because this is not the right place for them, I don't see that as my responsibility. I see that as your job as the manager and as the company. I have had companies say, no, if they want to talk to you, we want to know if they want to talk to you about looking for another job. And I usually start those meetings with the person is you can be as open with me as you want, but don't tell me if you're looking for another job because I have to tell the company. That's fair. That was a fastball. I'm going to throw you a curveball, Bill. COVID hits. You're a successful leader. Here comes COVID. Did some of the CEOs, obviously some, but maybe share some insights on their struggle to adjust besides the bottom line, but their plan for executing the vision? Because now your employees are at home. They have you know, cats running across the screen. They have children at home. No one's at school, but they have a vision and a plan, but now there's a curveball. How about the struggles that some of the top level leaders went through? Oh my gosh. It was so difficult for these people because you were inventing it as you're going along. You were truly building the plane as you were flying it because you couldn't close down the business. It had to keep going. So, but some of these companies had 50, 60, 70% loss because things weren't just weren't happening. Things weren't moving. So what do you do to make that company survive? Um, One of the companies I worked with, um, Marsh McLennan, um, one of the things they did was they didn't lay off anybody, but they stopped all consultants for X period of time. We were just, we were all gone. And because they said, you're not our employees. These are our employees. They're more important. They struggled with everything from how do you conduct a remote meeting? Some people knew that. You know, if you're a global company, you've already been having remote meetings and and hybrid meetings. But a lot of people, it was all in one building or all in one floor. um, And they didn't have the faintest idea how to have these meetings. They didn't know. they They couldn't predict their finances, so they couldn't tell how much money are they going to have. There weren't sources immediately for loans. There were, you know, there were the PPP loans, um, and people could go for that, but that took a while too. So people really had to struggle. They, the, the, the leaders who did the best, there was no one right answer ever in COVID. Some places did what Marsh did. Some places laid people off. Some people, everybody took a pay cut. Uh, it what you did to to stay alive and to keep going really varied from place to place. The things that really mattered, in my experience, was that you had a sense of optimism that we're going to get through this. You had a sense of collective we're going to get through this together, and that that we're going to treat you as fairly and honestly and openly as we possibly can. The companies that really struggled were the ones who were like whispering in the back room and trying to fire people without talking about it and being secretive about it. Um, Or, you know, and there are some companies, listen, there are a couple of banks that basically said, you know what, we're not changing. We're, we're going to, as soon as, as soon as the lockdowns were over, you're back in the office. But there weren't a lot of those. Um, And they're still struggling. It's still a challenge for some of these companies. Bill, as our leader, I'm easily motivated. I get the company mission, but now we're in Zoom and I still have the buy-in. But you have Layson, 
who you can't read the room if we're together having sales meetings. How are you connecting with him to make sure he's engaged? I'm an easy one. I'm open with my feelings. I tell you everything. But how are you getting through to that employee? It's a little bit of a challenge. It is a challenge. Um, What people don't necessarily realize is that it was a challenge before. It was just a challenge that you'd learn to overcome. So you could have, you could be in the same office with somebody, but if they're very quiet and self-contained and shy, they're not going to tell you what's going on for them. They're not going to tell you whether they're motivated or not. You had to figure out how to deal with that person. It's the same problem. You have to learn how to do it. So whether do I communicate with Layson by Slack? Do I communicate with him by emails? Do we make phone calls? Do we do video? There are some people who hate video and are very uncomfortable with it. There are other people who I found were much more engaged when they were on a remote call like this than they were when they were in the room with you. There was something about having that psychological distance that made it easier for them to speak up and talk. So it's one of the things I had a client, um, one of the, I, we did some coaching at a company that was really focused around how do you manage remote teams when they've always been right there. People, you have to ask, Lason, what's going on? How are you doing? You, do you find, are you finding the work interesting? Are you doing things that you like doing? How's life at home? How's your family? Everybody healthy? You know, and you might not have asked those questions when they were in the office because you could see them and you could see their posture and you could see what they were, whether they were focused on their work or not. So one of the things people learn to do is to, to ask more questions and to talk more. There's Bill, a lot of those things. Sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt there. Um, how important is it for leaders to have a level of self-awareness? And how do you communicate when, obviously, the self-awareness is not there, that they're, you know, they're in this reality of, oh, everything's fine, everything's great, when everything's collapsing around them? Um, the, the short answer is it's critical. Um, you have to have self-awareness because if you don't, you're not going to know when you're having the wrong effect on other people. But um what leaders, leader, many people will tell you that I, I'm self-aware when what they mean is I understand my own intentions. I understand why I'm doing this. What they're not self-aware about is what impact that behavior is having on other people. Like I, one of my earliest clients, I would say, you know, you got to stop yelling at people. They think you're angry. He said, I'm not angry. I'm passionate. <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, that's not the effect you're having on people. And, and so you have to learn how they, they need, there are two things they need. They need to understand the impact, not just the intention. And they need to develop what I call predictive self-awareness. So lots of people have retrospective self-awareness. Like when I go home at night, I was like, man, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that thing to that guy because it probably made him feel bad. Those people, those people would tell you they're self-aware, but it's only self-aware looking backwards. You want people to be able to know what's the impact in the moment and what's, what, 
what is the impact I'm going to have on Jeff if I raise my voice, if I laugh, um, if I ignore him? Um, what's that going to do to him, and how does that affect my leadership? As coaches, a, a, a big part of our day-to-day is providing feedback. Yep. How, do you, how do you give feedback in a way that maintains or builds on the relationship while addressing maybe shortcomings or areas of improvement? The first, you have to have an alliance with the person. You have to, they have to believe that you're there to help them, right? And if they think you're there to be helpful to them in whatever way they think would be helpful to them, when you give them feedback, they're, if you say it directly, if you don't sugarcoat it, but you're not aggressive about it, um, if you're direct and you're constructive, meaning you help them figure out what the solutions are, you're not just giving them the negative feedback, they'll accept it. If they think you're an agent of the company, if they think they're having to do this because they're going to get fired if they don't, you can tell them they're the greatest thing since sliced bread and they still won't believe you. So um, the the feedback will will completely wash off. I've had people, I had I've had a couple of people walk out of uh, feedback sessions, you know, after those 360s in tears. I had one person who didn't call me for a month, you know, was absolutely heartbroken with the feedback and left and didn't call me for a month, then called me and said, I'm ready to start working on this. And she said, I think you can help me. I'm ready to do this and came back in and, and started working on it and made some real improvements. Um, so it's, it's important. She, she knew I was there to be helpful to her, not to make her toe the line. And, and that's what really matters. And I can't tell you how that happens. I think sometimes that happens in about 15 seconds. You know, they either know, they, they talk to you and they go, oh, I can trust this person. Or they come away going, mm, doesn't feel right. Sometimes it takes a much longer time. So it's almost like the, the old saying, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. It, Absolutely. It's- Absolutely. When they're ready, right. Or the old psychology, how many psychologists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Just one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. <laughs> There's a term that, 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 I, that you hear called managing up. And yep. I, could, I could share the, in my, from my own personal experience in my first head coaching job, I did a very poor job of. What advice, what are your thoughts on that? And, and how do you do it in a way that, again, you, know, you, you show loyalty to your, your, your manager or your supervisor or your CEO, whoever that person is that you're interacting with, but you also want to be able to talk about maybe issues or concerns that you have? The man, you are, we shouldn't have illusions that, of anything other than we are there to help the manager be successful. I would tell a manager, you're there to help your people be successful. So I, both are true. But if I, the first thing I tell people to do when they start work is know what your manager wants, know what they expect, um, know how they need to operate and, and adjust to that. 
be reflective of it. You know, I'm not saying that if somebody says, um, you know, I want you to go get my laundry, you should go get their laundry. But understand if, if they want to get an f- update every day, give them an update every day. If they want an email, I had a one a divisional CEO wrote an email to his CE, global CEO every Friday afternoon, 15 minutes. Here's what's happening. Here's what we did. Here's what we finished. Here's what the problems are. Done. Because that's the way the manager liked to operate. He liked to have that information. So, And he managed up really well. Because he met the manager's needs, the manager was open to hearing things from him, right? Where you run into trouble is when you start telling the manager, what you want is not what I'm willing to give you. What you're asking for is not something I'm willing to do. That's when you're going to run into trouble. Now, sometimes you have an absolute right to say, I'm not willing to do X, right? But you shouldn't have an illusion that your manager is going to love you for that. Right. That's going to that's going to go tough. Just like if you tell your your spouse, uh, I'm sorry, we're not buying that new car you really want. Right. Sometimes you got to do it, but they're not going to love you for it. What advice do you have for those leaders when they have to bring bad news? You know, it's either we didn't hit our, we're not hitting our numbers this quarter or, you know, in the case of Jeff, I listen, uh, this particular player is uh, not eligible. We're going to probably have to, you know, suspend them for the rest of the year or they've broken a rule and we're going to have to uh, take out, a, uh, do something uh, disciplinary here. I, you know, it's a, these, this is tough. This is the hard part of managing, right? Managing good performers is easy and fun. Like dealing with difficult situations, having tough conversations, telling somebody they're not working out. These are the hard parts of this job. And, and, you know, you had to do it with players and it's soul crushing sometimes. And, but you have to do it because you're not focused on them as an individual. You're focused on the team as a whole. And so one of the things I tell managers is remember that you're not just responsible for an individual. You're responsible for this whole entity, whether it's a team or a division or a business. And if you don't take care, if you don't do what you need to do, if you aren't ruthless, I don't mean unfeeling, but if you're not willing to do what needs to be done to an individual because it's in the greater good, uh, that's then you're going to have a really tough time. So, you know, when you, when you have a, a kid who's not succeeding, who's not playing well, you sit him down and you say, this is what I need to see from you. This is what will make you successful. If I don't see this, I can't have you on the team because you're not going to help your teammates and you're not going to feel good about it yourself. Right? And it's a hard conversation, but you're direct about it. And I've, you know, I've done this with 10-year-olds. I was never a, a coach beyond Little League. But you sometimes had to t- tell kids, no, you can't be the pitcher, right? Because <laughs> you just can't get the ball across the plate. Not any different. Um, you know, they're disappointed, but most people find a way around it. And, and you know, it, it, that's, that's what you got to do. Be direct. Be honest. Be compassionate. Right? Remember that they're human beings and that if you're kind to them, they will handle it better than if you're mean to them. 
And sometimes people are mean just because it's easier. It's, it's easier to get to fire somebody because you're mad at them than it is to fire them because you feel bad. I want to stay on that bill for a second. You have a team. Is it okay? Cause everybody's different on your sales team to pervert with, whip the horse or to hug one employee, but whip the horse on the other side? Or do we have to do everything the same across the board? If they're treated fairly, can you, you know, be a little bit tougher and whip that horse a little harder if Layson's not making numbers? Or do we have to kind of get everyone on the same page? I don't think successful leaders treat everybody the same. I think they treat everybody equitably. And which means that they get what they need and they get what, what is important to them. And, you know, if there are people who will be motivated to, to cross that bridge because it's it, because it's what I want for them. There are other people who will be motivated to cross the bridge because there's something to eat over on the other side. If I try to give Leighton, if he's doing it because he cares about me, and I say, well, there's food on the other side, Leighton, that's not going to motivate him. So yeah, good leaders understand what motivates people, and they gear their behavior toward those. If somebody needs tough love, you should give them tough love. If somebody crumbles under tough love and just needs some support and encouragement, then you do that. It's you. Leaders can't just be one way and be be the best they want to be. They can be successful, but they're never going to be the most successful they could be. And it's that whole notion of agility, of, of flexibility, of being able to do different things in different contexts and bring different parts of yourself to those different contexts that's really what's important in coaching. I'm sure you've seen this in the pe- kids you coach. You know, some of them needed you to hit him in the head with a two by four. Others yeah. just needed a pat on the back and, and a push onto the court. No, absolutely. So I think COVID hit the gas pedal on this, but no longer are people staying at the same job for 30 years where the company will say we have a great work-life balance, but yet we want you to come in every other Saturday. If your child's sick, we don't care. But there's a cost, an acquisition cost of going out, hiring somebody, the whole onboarding and training, different cultures, bringing everyone in. But if Layson's not happy, he's going to leave within a month. You as a leader, how do you make sure he has that culture that you want instilled in him but the caveat is, Bill, you have to do it over Zoom maybe because he's working remote. But if if he's not bought in, we're going to have to go through the hiring process again. Absolutely. The organizations know the cost of losing capable people, right? It's very expensive. Um, it, it, takes, it takes time. It takes resources. It slows your business down. Um, you don't get the stuff done you want to get done. And if you do it too much, it builds a bad reputation for you. I worked for one company where people are leaving because it's not it's an impossible place to work and and the word's getting around. So it's become harder for them to hire because it's because people know what they're like. I think 
I think it, you have it. You have to give people more opportunity. You know, I think I hear a lot from my clients that the kids these days just, you know, they want to move faster. They want to be, uh, they want to get promoted. They, they think after two years, they ought to be a VP and they ought to be making the decisions that I'm making after 25 years. You can't, you got to be able to tell them they can't do that while you're giving them interesting challenges. And sometimes that's pushing them beyond limits. It's giving them something to do that they don't know how to do. Um, the best, the people who are the most talented or the most high potential are people who, if you give them something they don't know how to do, they're going to be excited by it. They're going to be motivated by it. They're going to keep trying to figure that one out. There are other people who may not like that very much, but they may not be the most motivated people. Um, you have to decide whether you need to hold on to those folks or not. Um, and companies vary a lot in how much they, um, need to hold on to what I call, you know, utility players. Um, utility players are, are essential to any business um, or to most businesses, I should say. Um, and, but if you need to hold on to them, then you need to challenge them. You need to motivate them. You need to make them feel connected. What I keep hearing you asking about is how do you instill culture over Zoom? And, how do you make people feel a part of things over Zoom? And, you know, it's hard. It's not the same. And I think part of the answer is, even if you're a fully remote company, you need to bring people together. Being remote doesn't mean we never see each other. It means that when we get together, it's purposeful, it's focused, and it, it makes everybody feel connected. But you can also, you can do lots of stuff on Zoom. People have come up with a variety of different things to do, um, ranging anywhere from, um, you know, trivia games to cocktails to, and that's a part of it too. You know, you have to replace the social engagement that you had in the office with social engagement you do virtually. Part of what's interesting is you and I didn't grow up with that. We grew up going out and playing in the backyard, you know, uh, on the street. Um, in the neighborhood, a lot of kids these days are at 8, 10, 12 years old. They're on some sort of social media. They have friends that are all over the world. Um, uh, one of my nephews uh, went to camp every summer. And when I went to camp, you never, you didn't talk to the kids until next year's camp. He's in touch with them all the time. They're on, they're on whatever communication platform they use, and they stay in touch. So it's not that you can't do it. It's that those of us who didn't learn how to grow up doing this have to learn those skills and have to go through that experience. And unfortunately, most of the leaders didn't grow up in that environment. So we're, we're learning by you know, making mistakes. I'll give you one more before we uh, lacen and I have some fun. Uh, how do you formulate and present an argument to your peers or superior? You don't agree with what's coming down and you know you have a day notice, but how do you plan and articulate an argument that, that may ruffle some feathers? I think the first thing you have to do is you have to acknowledge what they think. 
So you have to explicitly show that you understand what they're telling you. So I understand that you believe that, that I understand that we have a problem, right? We're not meeting our numbers. Our profits are down and we need to cut heads by 5%. As, and you see that as the solution to the problem we have. And that's a viable solution. But I think there's an alternative and I think there's a better alternative that will protect the company at just as well as that will. So the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that, that you understand what they're saying. Because if they don't think that you understand their point of view, they're just going to say it slower and louder until you do. Right. And so once you've acknowledged that, then you can offer them an alternative. And if you say to them, and you have to, you can't just tell them what your solution is. You have to tell them why it's beneficial to them, why it solves the problem that they're coming up with. Because then you can have a debate about is solution A or solution B better, as opposed to am I right or are you right? You know, it's it, it if you if you take it out of the and what most people often do is they'll like. I think that's the wrong way to go. I think we need to we need to cut, you know, all our excess spending, and you know, but I, we shouldn't be cutting any employees. You know, it, like now we've just you've just made a statement, not a had a discussion. So the more you engage people in it and you help address the problem that they're trying to solve, that's when you're going to be most effective. Doesn't mean you're going to be effective all the time. But at least it's going to give you a shot at it because you have to take the ego out of those debates. That's what I'm basically saying. Make it not about you, not about them. Make it about the problem. All right, Layson, I think we, uh, we've gotten so many pearls of wisdom. I've written notes and uh, Bill's been great. Let's have some fun. Are you ready for uh -oh. A couple fun questions with them. Go for it. Yes, yes. And in fact, um, I've already crossed off one of them because uh, you told your uh, psychologist joke earlier. So <laughs> I don't, I don't have to ask you that one for now. So, um, but but we will do this. I'll give you this scenario. We we have a time machine, and you could travel back and and spend time with William James or Freud or Frankel. Who would you choose, and what would you ask them? What would you discuss with them? Well, I'm just going to tell you what popped into my head, which is Martin Luther King Jr. Very good. Because he was an unbelievable leader. He could fire up millions of people to do something that they don't normally do, which is to be nonviolent, but to be, but to strive for what they were. I was, I missed his, um, uh, I have a dream speech by about four years, um, but and uh, but he, I would love to talk to him about how he held to those beliefs, how he um, thought about the people who were working with him and following him. I just think he would have been a fascinating. I mean, I, we could do Lincoln also. I mean, there are a lot of those kind of people, but that's the one that came to my mind first. No, I, I love that one. I, I love that one. Of course, Jeff and I have a relationship with uh, George Raveling, who. Uh, you know, was there and, and, you know, of course he has the speech, you yeah. know, he, he owns it. So that's a, that's a great wow. story. 
obviously we want our listeners to buy your book. Yes. Besides your book, are there other books that have had a huge influence on your philosophy and, and your work? There are business books that have had an impact. Um, and there are other kinds of books that have had an impact. Um, speaking of Lincoln, um, Team of Rivals uh, is, if you can get through it, is a phenomenal book about teams. Team of Teams, uh, more recently, uh, by Stanley McChrystal, I found incredibly useful in the work I do with teams. It, it, it puts a spin on how you work with heavily entrenched siloed groups that I was incredibly impressed with. Um, I think um, Good to Great was one of the first books I read. Um, and um, The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. Um, when I, when I, before I had ever thought about sort of the psychology of business, my boss at the software company uh, the, that bought my company uh, handed me this book and he said, take a look at this. This might be interesting for you. And I started reading it and I came back and I said, this is just systems theory applied to business. He said, yeah. I said, I know systems theory because we had studied it in graduate school. So that, that one had a big impact on me as well. Um, and um, quite honestly, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning um, was an incredibly impactful book. Because I think if you, that's, that's what we all need. That's what we're all working toward is finding meaning. You mentioned McChrystal and I remember, I want to say it was his book on leadership that he said something to the effect of there was over 200 different definitions of leadership. How would you define leadership? What is your working definition of leadership? I think leadership in the 21st century is different than it was in the 20th century. And, but I think leadership is the ability to have a vision, to inspire other people to deliver that vision, to provide people with an environment where they can work on that effectively and um, uh, build followership. Get other people, you know, you're not, you're not a leader if nobody's following. So it's, you have to, it's really, it's building followership, getting people to follow you. I think that's, that's the essence of a leader. Bill, what will your legacy be? What will they say? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you got an hour? Um, um they will say that Bill said his purpose in life was to help others be the best version of themselves. He has done that in every career he's ever had. He did it as a teacher. He did it as a therapist. He did it as a coach. He did it as a business leader. And uh, so he lived his purpose. It's impactful. That's great. All right. So Harvard plays Yale in football. What yeah. color are you wearing? Oh, definitely crimson. Okay. There's no doubt. <laughs> where, where, where you go when you're 18 is different than when you go when you're 24. 
All right, let's go to the New Haven, Connecticut pizza places. Frank Pepe's or Sally's? Pepe's, no doubt. Hands no down. Doubt. And Pepe, they've both started expanding into Fairfield County. Sally's is blow is a bust. Pepe's really? is doing great. Yep. Lacen, the one I wasn't sure on at Pepe's was the white clam pizza, and it was off the charts. Unbelievable. Yeah. So good. Yeah. All right. So let's say a long week in Connecticut, nice weather, not what you're probably having now, but nice weather. What's on the grill and what's in the glass? Oh, at my house, what's on the grill is, uh, so that's, that's an important question for me because I have a big green egg. So what's on the grill for me is a 12-hour a, a brisket. Uh, and, and what's in the glass is a really nice uh, Cabernet. So if you hadn't won Lacen over with all the knowledge, you got him with the brisket. Well, well he, he, he won me. He started to win me with the books, but yeah, the brisket just <laughs> sealed the deal right there, Bill. Uh, that is great. Bill, I have uh, a few short answer, top 25 questions. Pick a number between one and 25. 17. Do you believe in ghosts? No. What game show would you have liked to have appeared on? Uh, Jeopardy, although I would have failed miserably. For one night, pro athlete or famous musician? Musician. Listen, we have so, Bill was so diverse. We had knowledge, we had brisket. Uh, <laughs> this could have kept going. Bill, can you let our listeners know where they can get the book, how they can get in contact, social media, all of those things? So easiest thing is my website, which is www.bermanleadership.com. Berman spelled the way it is on this screen. Um, I am on LinkedIn as Dr. Bill Berman. Um, I am on Facebook as Dr. Bill Berman. And um, I am on Amazon as Bill Berman and George Bratt influence and impact, uh, discover and excel at what your organization needs from you the most. So Amazon, uh, any other bookstore, um, and, and the website are the way to go. It was great, Bill. Thank you so much. Lacey and I just have had so much fun. Our listeners are going to love it. Uh, again, anything we can ever do, we, we reference uh, you often, and uh, there's so many great tidbits that we're going to keep sharing. But again, thank you so much. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. You're great interviewers. And Jeff, I, I'm uh, a big supporter of uh, Wounded Warriors, so uh, good for you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Lason Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media. 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 Media.